1: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness, God called the light, day, and the darkness, night. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day.
0: Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. New Living Translation
1: Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female, And he said, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together.
0: The Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, New Living Translation. Hi! I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today we want to continue our discussion series that we're calling The Truth in Genesis. And to help us do that, we've invited one of the premier scientists and experts on the question of origins, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, to be our guest in the Anchored by Truth studio for the next several weeks. For those of you who aren't familiar with Dr. Sarfati's work, we would encourage listeners to check out his impressive body of writing. He's written a number of widely selling books that challenge the conventional views of what chemistry, geology, and paleontology say about the age of the universe and the origin of life. Dr. Sarfati has sold hundreds of thousands of books, such as Refuting Evolution, Volumes 1 and 2, By Design, The Greatest Hoax on Earth, and The Genesis Account. During this series, Dr. Sarfati will be addressing a wide variety of topics that are pertinent to the question of the origin of the Earth and the universe. He will be providing us with insight into the extensive body of scientific evidence that supports the truth of the Genesis text. Along the way, he will be addressing a number of subjects, including problems with conventional dating methods, affirmative evidence that the universe is actually fairly young, Scientific challenges to life arising from non living chemicals, and evidence that the Earth's surface provides abundant evidence of a worldwide flood. We will even be doing an entire show just on dinosaurs and what the latest dinosaur research actually tells us about the Earth's history. But before we get too far into the discussion, Dr. Sarfati, would you like to say a word of greeting to the Anchored by Truth listeners? and maybe tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Uh, and greetings to all the Anchored by Truth listeners, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jonathan Sarfati. I am actually from a different country, as you can probably tell by now. I'm from New Zealand and Australia, but I have lived in this country for nine years. We have two little granddaughters who live in Bartow, Florida. One reason we came over here, I did take out American citizenship uh, two months ago. I've been working for Creation Ministries International for 23 years now. I am a PhD scientist. I studied chemistry and physics for my PhD in spectroscopy. I'm also a retired chess master. I was New Zealand chess champion uh, a number of years ago. I sometimes play blindfold chess, which is chess from memory against a number of different people. So that's a little hobby of mine I do sometimes.
0: Just to be abundantly clear for the Anchored by Truth listeners, The Bible really does teach that the creation activity taught in the opening verses of Genesis is that creation occurred in six literal 24-hour days. Do I have that right?
2: Well, the opening chapter of Genesis sets the tone for the whole Bible. See, if you can believe the first verse of the Bible, you can believe anything else. But if you don't believe the first verse, well, why should you trust anything else in it? It tells you, God made us, He made everything very good, it tells us how sin came and ruined things, which is why we have death and suffering disease in the world now. But God didn't make it that way. So it asks the question of why is there a loving God, but there's so much death and suffering? Well, God didn't make it that way. Don't blame God, blame sin, because that's what caused it. But it also leads the way to the redemption story. We have the creation, we have the fall, but then we have the redemption. Paul connects the redemptive story of Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead with Adam bringing sin and death into the world in the first place. And Jesus goes to Genesis to explain things like marriage. He goes to Genesis to warn about a coming judgment by referring to the past judgment of the flood. So clearly Jesus believed Genesis as real history. And therefore, if Jesus believed it, then so should we as Christians believe it as well.
0: Is it fair to say, Dr. Sarfati, that what some have termed the battle for the beginning is one of the most significant challenges facing the Church today, especially in America and in much of the developed world?
2: It absolutely is, because where you came from affects what we are doing here and our final destiny. And every religious view is trying to work out those three questions. Where do we come from? Uh, what are we doing here and what's our destiny? And atheism has the totally wrong answer. We got we are rearranged pond scum, the result of time, chance and energy and natural selection survival of the fittest. We're here for no reason at all except to propagate our genes and our destiny is to become fertilizer. But the Christian worldview is much better than that because it says that we're created by a loving God who is incredibly brilliant, more than we can possibly imagine. He's got a plan for us, and he's also got an ultimate destiny for us, which is to live in perfect fellowship with him in the new heavens and new earths. And also, it makes a difference to how we live our life because God loves us and therefore makes rules for our good. And because he made us, he owns us and has the right to make the rules for us.
0: But there are also other implications about whether you believe that God created us, aren't there?
2: If we have no God, we have no ultimate foundation for ethics or morality, no prohibition. And we see the contrast in the 20th century, probably about 100 million people were murdered by their own governments who followed an evolutionary path. The communists, which are the international socialists, and the Nazis, who were the national socialists, murdered 100 million of their own people in non-wartime deaths. So it makes a big difference in what we believe.
0: It sounds as though you have a real heart to increase what we call an awareness of the truth in Genesis to our culture today. So that sounds like you believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God, which is a point of view we definitely share on Anchored by Truth. Is it fair to say that one of the reasons it's so important to be very clear about a proper understanding of the opening verses of Genesis is because any view of creation other than a literal six days, meaning 24-hour days, understanding of Genesis would require the existence of animal and human death before Adam's sin? This would undermine God's declaration of the unspoiled creation being very good, and the clear link Scripture makes between sin and death.
2: Yes, this is one of the key reasons to take Genesis as straightforward history, because in Genesis you have the clear teaching that God finished His creation and called it very good, and that's the seventh time He calls it good in Genesis 1. And seven is a number of perfection in the Bible. So He's telling us that when He finished creation, there's nothing wrong, no death, no suffering, nor pain in His finished creation. But, of course, we're not living in that world now. So something's happened, and the Bible tells us Genesis 3, Adam sinned, and God punished him with physical death. He said, you're made from dust, now you're going to return to dust. And it's very important because Paul's gospel passage, his gospel chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about the gospel and the resurrection, he clearly links the death that Adam brought through sin with the death on the cross by Jesus to pay for our sin, and then his physical resurrection to show that he conquered death and was the person he claimed to be, and that God had accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. So Paul makes this very important logical connection. Adam brought death, Jesus brought resurrection from the death. If you have millions of years, that means the fossil record has existed for millions of years, which includes human and animal fossils, and you have to put those before Adam's sinned.
0: But if the Earth were millions of years old, you say this connection between the existence of sin and the existence of death is undermined, correct?
2: So this undermines the whole basis of a gospel that Paul creates in 1 Corinthians 15, where he quotes the first three chapters of Genesis. He quotes them as real history, and he makes deep theological points that depend on this real history in Genesis. And he also expects his readers to have been taught about Genesis. He didn't have to explain who Adam was. He expected his readers to have been taught about that already. So from the beginning of the Christian church, it shows that they were discipled in the Book of Beginnings.
0: So let's amplify on the essential truth for our listeners. You strongly believe that the six days of creation described in Genesis chapter 1 should be understood as literal 24-hour periods. Why?
2: There are a number of different reasons. First of all, it's the immediate context. The immediate context is the day has both a number and it has an evening and a morning. So sometimes day in English and Hebrew isn't always 24 hour days, but every time it has an evening morning and it has a number, it constrains the possible meaning of day to being a 24 hour day or a part of that period. I mean, there's a book by a long age, Apologist, which is called Seven Days That Divide the World. So I'm waiting for a sequel, which is three days that divide the world, showing that Jesus was in the tomb for billions of years. And the other thing is, God himself has told us what he meant in Genesis 1 when he gave the Ten Commandments written with his finger. One of them was about the Sabbath command. He told the Israelites, you work for six days and you rest on the seventh because he made everything in six days and rested on the seventh. So he told us what he meant by Genesis 1. Clearly, it's a pattern for our working week. I mean, if the days were millions of years long, we'd have to work for six million years and rest for one million years which is a nice long weekend to look forward to, but I don't think it's what he means. Okay, and also shows that these days must have been real days in history because how could we be held accountable for not working six days unless God really had worked six days as he said he did?
0: The Hebrew word yam can be used to mean longer periods than a 24-hour day. Is interpreting yam to mean age rather than day a possible interpretation?
2: Well, not in the context. You see, context determines meaning. As I said, the days of Genesis 1 have a particular context of the evening, morning, and a number, and the interpretation that God gave you in the Ten Commandments. So, it rules out day being non-literal here. Even in English, we can even tell the difference between, in my father's day, he would travel six days to cross the country. You see, in the six days you know it's an ordinary day, but in my father's day you know it's a time period. So, context determines meaning, even if it's in the same general passage.
0: The Gap Theory of Creation posits a gap of an indeterminate time between creation and the subsequent events in Genesis and thereby could permit the Earth to be millions or billions of years old. Is that possible?
2: Well, the point is, I mean, the day age theory and the gap theory were only thought of in the 19th century as a reaction to secular geology and its claims of millions and billions of years. It wasn't something that people saw in the Hebrew text until they needed an excuse to see it. Now, with the gap theory, you've got a whole lot of problems here. One is that if the fossils were formed in this gap, it means you have death and suffering. But at the end of creation, God says everything's very good. So how could you have had a fall of Satan, all these humans and animals dying, horrible deaths, eating each other, tearing each other to pieces, and then God says everything is very good? The grammar doesn't work because you have to really play around with the Hebrew verbs. You have to say, instead of the earth was formless and empty, you have to say the earth became formless and empty. Now, you try and do that with other passages of scripture. You have the Gideon attacked the Midianites camp and it was unsuspecting. Now, if you translate it the way the gap theorists have to do, it's Gideon attacked the camp and it became unsuspecting. That's the grammar, that's a consistent interpretation. Or, Jonah came to Nineveh and it became an exceedingly great city. So, all these things make no sense of the gap theory if you can't be consistent using that translation.
0: Some biblical commentators argue that the seventh day of creation in which God rested is still going on. If so, that means that at least one of the days of creation wasn't 24 literal hours doesn't that mean that our earlier six days might also be of an indeterminate length?
2: What they will do is point to uh, Hebrews 4 and talk about God's rest still going on. But if I took a holiday starting on Monday and continue it to the rest of the week, it doesn't mean that Monday is still continuing. It just means that my rest is continuing. So it just says nothing about the length of the day. All it says is that God ceased from his creation on day seven. He is continuing his rest, but the day seven doesn't continue. Nothing about the day seven continuing. Well, I mean, the idea is that because day seven hasn't got evening and morning, maybe it's not a literal day, but then surely the days with the evening and morning have to be literal days. I mean, it does make sense what they're saying. And again, go back to the Sabbath commandment. Is the Sabbath a billion-year period?
0: From a biblical standpoint... What is the age of the universe and the earth? How is this age calculated?
2: Okay, we can get that from a few different things. Well, first of all, when Jesus talked about marriage, and you go to the Mark passage of it in Mark 10, it tells you that Adam and Eve were there from the beginning of creation. You see, this means that they can't have been there much after the beginning of creation. It means that if you take a straightforward timeline of say 4,000 years before from creation to Christ, you put six days on that, it's right at the beginning. But if millions of years are true, it means they're right at the end of this creative process. It doesn't make any sense. But to get it more precisely, okay, Adam and Eve were there on day six, so six ordinary days. I've hopefully shown you that they were ordinary days. But then Genesis 5, Adam was 130 years when he became the father of Seth. So even if there are people missing in the line, there's no time missing in the line. It's always the person is a certain number of years old at the birth of the next in line. So there's no time gap in Genesis 11 and Genesis 5. And then you have other biblical data. You have Adam to Noah, Noah to Abraham, Abraham to the Exodus. We know how long the Exodus was. You can have Exodus to the setting up of the Israelite monarchy. You've got the time from that till Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. And then we have a secular corroboration of Nebuchadnezzar because he's very well known in the secular historians as well. So we get an idea when everyone who looked at the Hebrew text, they all calculated a creation date of roughly 4000 BC. My Genesis commentary, the Genesis account, calculates 4175 BC. I'm not going to quibble about a few years here and there. But it's interesting that everyone who went to the Hebrew text came up with roughly the same amount.
0: What resources would you recommend for Christians who want to study a correct interpretation of the book of Genesis?
2: Well, I mean, not to blow my own trumpet too much, but I've written an 800-page commentary on Genesis 1-11, to which goes into what the Hebrew text, and hopefully it's understandable to everyone, even though I wrote it so expository pastors could help with their preaching over through Genesis verse by verse. But also so everyone can understand it's actually been used in some seminaries but also plenty of lay people have read it and understand it it talks about how the new testament authors and jesus understand genesis because i think one of the strongest reasons to believe in genesis is this is clearly what jesus believed and a straightforward history and then i talk about dinosaurs and radioactive dating and the flood evidence and molecular machines and dna I don't think any of the commentaries will tell you where the dinosaurs were, for instance. Okay. And there's also a new video series called the Genesis Academy we've just produced, my organization, Creation Ministries, and it's a 12-part video series based on the book, but this time it's several different speakers representing four different countries. So it's a 12-part series with a free study guide, and it's free to show to large groups as well.
0: Could you tell us a little bit more about the organization you work with, Creation Ministries International?
2: This organization has been going for over 40 years now under different names. And it has offices in a number of different countries around the world. The headquarters is Australia, but the American office is growing. It's in Powder Springs near Atlanta, Georgia. Now, we probably hire more PhD scientists than any other Christian organization that I know of. And what we are trying to do is equip the saints into how they can defend the Bible from the very first chapter in it, which is probably the most attacked chapter around, because the anti-Christians know if they can actually discredit the first book of the Bible, people aren't going to bother trusting the rest of it. And also, when we consider how the Gospel message and Jesus often went back to this first book of the Bible, I think you can see that if this is undermined, you're actually undermining Paul and Jesus and Peter by association.
0: Why do you think that Creation Ministries International is such a great resource for believers in today's culture?
2: Creation Ministry sees ourselves as a service to the church and the family because we have a website, creation.com, which has about 13,000 articles on it. And we have a number of different languages. Uh, we've translated a few articles into different languages. A lot of Spanish articles, a lot of Russian articles, Chinese articles. So very helpful for non-English speaking listeners to know there's actually other language resources we have. We produce books and DVDs. Our websites updated every day, we have an email newsletter you can sign up to, we're very good at keeping your privacy, we won't uh, spam your email inbox, you won't find yourself spammed by other people, we will protect your privacy. So, creation.com is our free website. On that you can go much further into different resources that will help you defend the Bible from the first verse.
0: Could you briefly go over some of the giants of science who were also ardent Biblical creationists?
2: Now, you may have heard that no real scientist would ever believe in creation. Now, this would have been news to most of the founders of modern science, because they were all staunch believers in biblical creation. Now, the most famous scientist of all time probably is Sir Isaac Newton, who discovered the law of gravity, three laws of motion, the law of cooling, invented the reflecting telescope discovered the spectrum of light, he co-invented calculus, and yet he wrote more about the Bible than he wrote about science. He thought his most important book was a book about the prophecies of Daniel. And when you consider how much amazing work he did in science, that really is saying something. So this is one of the greatest scientists of all time, was clearly a Bible believer. And then you have people like Johann Kepler, who discovered the laws of planetary motion, that planets moved in elliptical orbits around the sun. But he said he was thinking God's thoughts after him. All the science writings were peppered with devotional language to the mighty God who made everything, that he was trying to honor by his scientific work. And then you get into Michael Faraday, who discovered electric motors. He was a founder of electromagnetism, and he was a member of the Sandemanians, which is a very devout Christian sect in Britain. And you would call them fundamentalists today. And then James Clerk Maxwell, who I regard as a second greatest scientist after Newton, who discovered laws of magnetism and very important things in thermodynamics. He discovered how Saturn's rings must be particles and not a solid ring. Einstein himself, the greatest scientist of the 20th century, he regarded Newton, Faraday, and Maxwell as his scientific heroes. And yet, all of those were biblical creations. Maxwell was actually so devout that he defended the global flood of Noah against the skeptic. It was quite uh, incensed that anyone would dare to question the reliability of Genesis and the flood. So, lots of these things. Pascal was a very devout Roman Catholic scientist who discovered the laws of probability and laws of hydraulics. But he wrote a very famous devotional book, Pensées, which means thoughts. A very good devotional book. And then you have Louis Pasteur, another Catholic. Creationist. around the time of Darwin he discovered optical activity left and right handed molecules he also is most famous for discovering the law of biogenesis which says life comes only from life which refutes evolution he's never been overturned he invented the process of pasteurization Joseph Lister the founder of antiseptic surgery which is an incredible lifesaver because before Lister surgery was as dangerous as whatever it was treating because of the high infection rate so it took a creationist joseph lister to overcome that another one was a discoverer of anesthesia james simpson discovered chloroform and then used it on queen victoria for childbirth but he said what's wrong with this because when god created eve from adam's rib he put him to sleep so therefore god used anesthesia so why shouldn't we do the same for women giving birth So here's just a small sample of some of the greatest scientists who ever lived who clearly believed the Bible and were inspired by their Christian faith to do their science.
0: So, one of the biggest takeaways from our discussion is that any view of creation other than a literal six-day of 24-hour duration understanding of Genesis would require the existence of animal and human death before Adam's sin. This would undermine God's declaration of the unspoiled creation being very good and the clear link scripture makes between sin and death. This position implies that the earth is thousands rather than billions of years old. Dr. Sarfati, we'd really like to thank you for joining us on Anchored by Truth today. Just as a reminder, this show as well as all Anchored by Truth episodes will be available by podcast shortly after the broadcast airing. So any listener today who has a friend or study group that could benefit from Dr. Sarfati's depth of knowledge can go to their favorite podcast app and search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. Today for our closing prayer... How about if we pray that everyone would come to a saving knowledge of the God of the Bible, who is our one sure anchor to truth?
3: A prayer for the spiritually lost. Wondrous and perfect Father, we exalt your name and sing praises to your glory. Your word is the foundation of joy and the bedrock of hope. In you, there is blessed assurance. Without you, the shifting sands of a sin-stained shore would wash away beneath us and we would be swept into the depths by the tides of trouble. With you we cannot be moved or thrown down, though all the waves of chaos should pound against us with fervor and anger. Lord, too many have been swept away and we are grieved to see all about us, people we know whose life foundations are crumbling." We see our neighbors being pushed to and fro by the currents of popular opinion and whose lives are filled with fear and despair because they have no sustaining source of truth. We come before you today to plead for their rescue and redemption. We ask that you sovereignly intercede in the lives of those who are lost and sinking and turn their hearts to you. As when the citizens of Nineveh heard Jonah's preaching and repented, Please touch our land and community with your word and call our neighbors to you. Give us opportunities to witness that we would miss on our own. Strengthen our hearts to stand for Christ as he stood for us. The glory is his alone, so it is in his name we pray, give thanks, and ask for the lost to be saved. Amen.
0: We hope you'll be with us next time when we'll continue our discussion with Dr. Sarfati, and we hope that you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this or the other shows. Crystal Sea Books would like to make sure that all the Anchored by Truth listeners know that if they enjoy listening to the prayers that are presented at the end of each episode, those prayers are available for individual use from Amazon. There are two different prayer albums available. One album is prayers for family and friends, and another is prayers about faith and freedom. Those prayers can make a thoughtful centerpiece of daily devotions, or they can be used with Bible study groups or small group meetings. There are even prayers for friends who are sick or about to undergo medical procedures that you can share with those who are experiencing difficult moments. Sometimes it's hard to find just the right words to speak to people, or even to speak to the Lord. These earnest and thought-provoking prayers can help, not to be substitutes for your own fervent prayers, but as a sort of friend to come alongside and let you know that others have walked through the valley too. The individual prayers, or an entire album, are available for a modest fee, and all the funds go to support the work of bringing the truth of Scripture to our current culture. To find the prayer albums, Just go to Amazon and search on Purposeful Prayers to find either the Faith and Freedom album or the Family and Friends album. You can also find R.D. Fierro's meditational and devotional book on prayer, which is also entitled Purposeful Prayers, Learning to Pray Like Jesus. As R.D. says in the book, the whispered prayer that stirs the hand of God is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. It's time for all of us to come boldly before the throne of grace. And all of us, and anchored by truth, would like to encourage everyone to be blessed by God's amazing grace. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not famous,
3: but our boss is.